0: Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder, and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guests on the podcast today just won two gold medals at the Great American Beer Festival in some hotly contested categories, including the uh, number two most entered uh, category of uh, American-style IPA. Uh, Comrade Brewing, David Lynn and Mark Slanham, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having us on.
0: Cool. Uh, And when I say second most entered, I was looking at the numbers this morning, and it really was only the second most entered by six entries. The Hazy IPA only had 348 uh, entries to 342, and so it was a nice rebound from last year. Uh, Is West Coast IPA coming back?
1: Uh, I I don't think it went anywhere. I think it's always uh, been very popular, and that's what we kind of focus on down here.
0: Cool. well let's talk a little bit more about uh you know bring these kinds of styles of dry west coast IPAs. i shouldn't say dry i should say progressive uh, because one of the things that you all did when you launched in the, on the scene in uh, what 2014 was kind of bring this uh, kind of new school approach to West Coast IPA and a you know fresh kind of hops forward and uh, you know a more interesting character than some of the kind of dry and only bitter uh, you know beers of the past. Let's talk a little bit more about how you brew those. But first, as the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, G and Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, reliability, and dedication to their customers' craft. Thinking outside the box, whether whether it's a simple relocation of the utility connections for a complex build up or ground level design and engineering G&D is ready to meet the challenge. Contact G&D Chillers today at 1-800-555-0973 or reach out online at gdchillers.com. Mention this podcast and receive up to $1000 worth of glycol with the purchase of any new G&D chiller. Also, Tavor is the tastiest way to explore the world from the comfort of your home. Select delicious craft beers on the Tavor app that you cannot find in your area and get them delivered right to your door. It's not a beer of the month club where you end up with duds you have to give to your grandpa. Download the free Tavor app today and get $10 in beer money with code brewing. Tell me a little bit about Comrade, how you all ended up where you ended up here. Give um, me about a two or three minute arc of history for you that, uh, that brought you to this time and place in brewing David and Mark's.
1: Um, okay, yeah. So we, uh, let's see. I, I started commercially brewing in '05 and we were both in Lubbock, Texas, I was there for undergrad, and there was only one brew pub in town, and there was an opening when the other assistant brewer moved out of the country, and I jumped on in there, and uh, we've always just kept in touch since then. I finished up school, and I I left, I moved to Colorado, I took a corporate gig, um, but then wasn't very happy with it, spent my nights and weekends helping out with festivals, uh, for Grand Teton Brewing Company, but I was here in Denver or in the Springs um, and working up in Summit County as well uh, at, for all of my free time. Um, ended up leaving my corporate gig and got hired on at Dry Dock in Aurora for a brewing gig and went back to school and came back and wanted to get this place going. So uh, me and Marks have actually been talking about this, I think, Uh, semi-seriously since 2008 and wasn't really talking about it and weren't really serious about it until about 2010.
2: Uh, Yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, So yeah, David, um, I think you you did mention you were my assistant brewer uh, (laughs) starting back in uh, 2005, I think it was. And uh, yeah, like you said, we just kept in touch over the years. Uh, He moved up here. Uh, I ended up going to Idaho and uh, Oregon for a while, but yeah we uh kind of always had this in mind for a
0: while it just took a while to make it happen but here we are it's kind of an enduring brewing friendship that has kind of lasted through a decade and a half and uh, multiple states to end up right here in colorado brewing this why why end up south of downtown in denver brewing this kind of style of beer that you focus on
1: so, uh, I, I had already been here and um, having worked for Grant Eton, um, I built up a lot of connections, whether it's with brewery owners and other brewers. And then uh, moving on to dry dock, I was working under Bill I. Right. And from there, that was Bill, just Bill, who's
0: now at Bierstadt Lagerhaus, co founder. Exact, yeah.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So, he ended up, um, or so we ended up just like I, I've always been here. And so I just knew that, you know, the, the water, the quality is great. the the taxation is like light and uh, it's just like easy to just open up tap rooms. So uh, since I was already here, I was like, I just want to, I just want to just stay here and kind of get this thing going. Uh, As far as location, um, it really didn't matter as long as we could get the brewing equipment inside the building. Yeah. uh, As long as there was enough space. And uh, I mean, I looked at maybe three dozen plus properties uh, from Highlands Ranch to North Denver, like all the way up to Arvada and, uh, ended up just uh, you know, this one ended up working out. We actually had another another location in Lakewood that we were talking to the landlord with, and just it just went nowhere. And so right, um,
0: that's right. that's how we're here. Even in 2012, as you're looking to open up a brewery, opening up in Colorado is a pretty competitive move. You know, even at the time, there were. Uh, you know, between 250 and 300 breweries. And now there's something like 463 uh, breweries and breweries in planning, according to the Brewers Association. Uh, you know, that's that's a lot of breweries in a state of 6 million people. And the Denver metro area has, you know, 70 plus breweries just here alone. It's kind of a, a you know, ballsy, bold move to move into a market like that uh, and think that uh, you can, you know, make a, make a difference in it. What, uh, you know, what you know why do that? Why move into such a competitive place?
1: Well, I think uh, it just—it's been my neighborhood, and with the familiarity of it, um, I just felt more comfortable here. Um, it would be a little bit more difficult to yeah. move to a different city that maybe I didn't haven't spent much time in or haven't lived in, and um, you know, Denver just
0: made sense sure. that way. And your brewery model—you still don't package beer. You know, you you do you know, crowlers out of a tap room, but you are primarily you know draft to limited accounts through you know the front range of Colorado, and mostly taproom business. Why focus the business in that kind of way?
1: Well, uh, you know, we are, you know, Colorado's probably premier draft brewery. Um, The reason is that we, having worked for, both of us having worked for numerous other breweries, we knew that we were going to kind of go into business, and, uh, you know, this way we could also have fun and still enjoy what we do. Um, You know, I don't think any of us really um, thought that the packaging part of the brewing job was all that, fun and interesting and you know uh you know brewing is also just such a resource intensive process we use a lot of water electricity natural gas and you know it's the most sustainable way to to serve beer and you know we've saved well over i don't know well over a million cans six-pack holders and case boxes from going to the landfill so uh you know just a greener way of, of drinking beer
0: but i mean that's an interesting idea you know, there, there's also the demands of a business, you know, where you need to be a certain scale to survive and, and pay people and do what you need to do. Um, you know, how do you balance those those two things? You know, there are a lot of breweries today who would tell you that they can't reach the scale that they need to have a sustainable business and reach their the goals of the business. Um, you know, being able to scale what your expectations are for the business based on that kind of thing, you know, is another kind of, uh, you know, bold but also strategic move.
1: Uh, well, so, my, you know, my my time spent at Dry Dock, uh, I think they have one of the largest indoor tap rooms in Denver Metro. I think maybe their tap room can hold over 300 people. Yeah. Uh, you look at our tap room, uh, we can hold over 170 people in here. So uh, the way that we've been able to kind of, you know, keep this place going is by having a really big tap room and by having a lot of people come in and, and drink beer um, by the glass. And that's kind of... a you know, if if we had a smaller tap room, we'd probably have to look at packaging or do a lot more distribution
0: to kind of make those numbers work. But um, with a big tap room, we can do that. Conceiving of that, though, even back, you know, and I, I always try to look at this now. You know, in retrospect, you look back at 2012, and it was hard to predict this kind of move to tap room focused business, which you know, by all accounts, like it has the entire craft beer and brewing business has moved towards this kind of tap room model, and. and you know, self-sales, you know, kind of approach, Um, you know, that, but that was different, you know, in 2012, where most people launching a brewery thought, you know, you have to package in order to even sell beer, you have to, keg, you have to put stuff out there and draft, Um, you know, what, uh, you know, what uh, was it, it was Dry Dock that convinced you that you didn't have to do that, that you could have a taproom focused model, or was it just that you wanted to be that much closer to your customers?
1: Uh, Well, it was just, just having a, you know, working at Dry Dock, it was just to have like a really big tasting room. Yeah. Um, as far as the packaging, you know, it just goes back us to you know to us both just um, you know not not enjoying the packaging part. Uh, I was there uh, when the first bottles, the first bombers rolled off the line, and I mean I've spent days just hand labeling pallets of bombers, and you know I, I still think back on it and wonder if I could have you know maybe spent those days uh, doing something a little bit more meaningful, and so. Uh, you know, it was, it was maturing, um, you know, 2014 was a crazy year with, I think 46 breweries opening up in Colorado. And I'm not sure if that pace is, uh, you know, we've even come close to that pace, uh, since then. So it's just the way that, uh, you know, it, it ended up working out for us. Yeah.
0: I like that idea of building the business to kind of fit the goals of what you enjoy doing so that, uh. There's that personal feedback uh, element to it and not simply the how do we make the most money off of doing this kind of thing. There certainly are decisions you could have made to make more money doing this. And you've chosen not to do those things because you don't like the work or, or you know, what else might be involved in that. Yeah, that sounds about right.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think if you've ever worked on a bottling line or a yeah. packaging line and you know had to uh, feed the line and take the bottles off, put them in the case by hand and then wrap it up. And uh, deal with that. It's um you you generally don't want to do it again.
0: I understand what you're saying. We've packaged our brewers re- re- uh, brewers retreat beer and uh, you know hand canned three or four hundred cans at a time, or hand bottled seven or eight hundred bottles at a time. And uh, uh, yeah, that sucks. Um, hand waxing two hundred bottles at a time is a gigantic pain in the ass, and I completely understand why you don't want to do that kind of thing. Um, cool. Let's talk a little bit about how you are, brew some of the beer and some of your approach to uh, you know to z- designing the beers that you brew. Uh, but first, whether you're a full-scale production brewery, a tap room, or a home brewer striving for the ultimate setup, October Can Seamers has the small-scale canning solution. They've proven the breweries increase revenue through to-go sales with October Can Seamers, and everyone loves to sell more beer. You're only a few clicks away from selling more beer. Just head over to octoberdesign.com. Slash podcast. That's October with a K, and use offer code Jamie. That's J A M I E to save fifty dollars on any Can seamer purchase. I swear I didn't put them up to that. That uh, they came up with that themselves. <laughs> Also, balancing barley and hops is your expertise. And for Clarion Lubricants, food-grade lubricants is theirs. The team at Clarion knows that when it comes to making great beer, you're the expert. And when it comes to supplying food-grade lubricants backed by service-oriented professionals, they're the experts. Clarion will work with you to create an efficient lubrication program that helps protect your brewery. To speak with an expert, dial 1-855-MY-CLARION. That's 855-692-5274. Or visit clarionlubricants.com. Clarion Lubricants. The expert that experts trust. So, Marks, talk to me a little bit about. I assume that uh, you know, as the head brewer, you're and co-founder. You're the the uh, primary brewing mind behind the operation. Uh, I assume that you split kind of business and brewing duties. Uh, would that be an accurate assessment for that? Uh, yeah, that's right. Talk to me then. You know, as your your pulling this business together, you know, and uh, David's built a business plan for it. How did you envision the beers that you would brew and how did you, know, have, did you develop a lineup, uh, you know, for what you're going to make and how and why you're going to make it? Uh, well, I've been
2: fortunate enough to uh, work with uh, a lot of good brewers uh, throughout my time in the business and I've tried to learn something from everywhere I've been and uh, everyone I've worked with and just over the years, uh, I guess I kind of developed the the way I like to make beer. And basically we always say this to people. We make beer that we like to drink and sell whatever's left over.
0: That seems to be underselling it by a huge amount. (laughs) There's, I know there's more to it, and I'm gonna to work to pull that out of you. Um, making beer that you like, why? Why do you like the beers, uh, you know, that you make this way, and why make them that way instead of a different way? Okay. And maybe we can start by just talking about IPA in that sense. You know, what is it about the style of IPA and how you choose to make it? Because there's a lot of different ways to make these kinds of beers. You can make right. IPAs in a myriad of different ways. What, uh, what pushed you in this kind of direction?
2: Uh, I guess over the years, I developed a taste for uh, just clean drinkable beer at some point i became a hophead, and once you go down that road you're kind of going to be that way for a while so um yeah we well focus on just clean top heavy drinkable beer uh we don't do hazy beer not yet anyway we don't do uh a lot of fruited beer we don't do sour beers we don't do a lot of barrel aging so
0: we're just kind of left with uh making what we want to make so if you're thinking about something like superpower now and you're a competitor you love to you know you you enjoy striving to brew the best possible beer in this style that you can, you know, that you can make, um, you know, in thinking about how you design a beer like superpower, you know, because there's lots of hoppy beers, there's lots of bitter beers, you know, you can make a beer as bitter as you want by loading up as much alpha acid in specific styles. And, you know, there are certainly brewers that had, that were doing that in the two thousands and uh, early 20 teens, you know, and just making the most bitter, most aggressive, uh, most in your face kind of, uh, you know, uh, West Coast style Hoppy IPAs. Um, you know but one of the things that you've done that I think is a little different you know was catch on to this trend of building flavor in addition to bitterness and using some some of those subtle flavor components to kind of set your beers apart. Talk to me a little bit about how you uh, look at hops and how you uh, you know build a, you know kind of hopping regimen to, to accomplish that.
2: Uh, well I certainly remember the days when uh, we design a beer. Uh, I'd say from the uh, from the first hop edition uh, to the end and uh, putting most of my bitterness up front so you're using less hop overall. And uh, at some point I realized that an IBU is an IBU, uh, if you want to look at it that way. It doesn't matter if it's up front or in the back. The benefit of, of course, putting it all at the uh, end is the uh, the type of aroma and flavor you get versus the uh, just the heavy bitterness.
0: And so then, for you, how did that that shift kind of happen? You started moving bittering uh, back, you know, uh, in time from uh, from that early edition back to the back.
2: Yeah, sure. You're going to use a lot more hops, but I think the end product is worth it.
0: What? Uh, how do you uh, calculate some of the difference in IBU contribution? I mean, I know especially as you're, you know, I, and, and I'm, I'm not sure where you're adding them late at the end of the of a boil, uh, whether you're adding them whirlpool or whether you're adding them with 10 minutes to go or, or whatnot.
2: Uh, we do uh, a lot of first-word hopping, which we count as, a, uh, as about the same as we would count a 20-minute uh, tw- uh, edition. Okay. And we got that from, uh, from Bill I. Yeah. He designed the spreadsheet that uh, we use, and according to uh, his brother and he, and some testing that they did, your first word hop is uh, equal to about a 20-minute edition. Then we do, for Superpower, for example, a 60-minute edition. Uh, the next one is a 20, another 20-minute 20 edition, and then a lot of Whirlpool.
0: Roughly, how would you kind of divide that up, you know, in terms of hops percentage, you know, throughout that? Are you, uh, you know, front-loading it with first word? Or are you, uh, you know, kind of splitting it evenly? It's actually,
2: the yeah, it's actually fairly evenly split. Okay.
0: And, you know, it's something like a Whirlpool, how do you calculate, uh, you know, even roughly, do you, uh, you know, some of the IBU contributions of those Whirlpool hops?
2: Well, early in the, in my career, you know, that always counted as uh, zero. Right. You didn't count it at sure, all. sure. But I think now people are realizing that, you know, you're still adding it to hot wort and you're extracting some bitterness still at that point.
0: Yeah. Do you, you know, have some way to uh, kind of figure for that that contribution of bitterness there in the whirlpool?
2: I mean, you can assign any number to it you want, whether it's 5% or 10% or, you know, whatever you want to do, really. Uh, I don't know that it makes that much difference in the end. Honestly, we're really looking more for flavor and okay. aroma these days than we are for uh, just straight-up
0: bitterness. Is there a, a way, you know, do you think about the choice of hops in order to provide a, uh, you know, in certain alpha levels or cohumulone levels in order to provide a certain uh, quality to that kind of bitterness?
2: I do think that there's something to do with uh, cohumulone. Yeah. It seems like a, a lower number there is going to provide a more pleasant experience, and that, that's just something I've seen over the years. Yeah, so we try to pick low co hops for uh, most of what we do.
0: Are there some favorites that you have?
2: Uh, Simcoe is a great bittering hop, actually. Yeah, um, nice and clean. Um, we use a lot of Citra, a lot of Mosaic these days, and um, yeah, that's mainly the bulk
0: of what we do. Are there some uh, blends of those hops that you uh, you find, especially in something uh, you know, like your West Coast IPAs, that uh, you know provide the different qualities uh, of flavor to that kind of uh, you know West Coast approach?
2: Oh uh, well. Yeah, I mean, it's no secret. Uh, Superpower is a blend of all three of those hops: um, citrus, Simcoe, and Mosaic. Occasionally, some Amarillo. Occasionally, in the case of More Dodge, uh, some uh, the hop formerly known as Denali, now Sultana. Now Sultana.
0: Yeah. Uh, what do you find that uh, you know the, uh, about the interaction of those hops that's uh, interesting to you? Uh, I don't
2: really know. I just think that you can't go wrong with the uh, you know citrus Simcoe uh, was kind of. Uh, one of those you can't lose combos early on right
0: right some of the easy button hops right? yeah
2: yeah cheater hops
0: yeah uh so but denali and or sultana as it's now known uh you know in more dodge less ram you bring it up and you did just win a gold medal in the american uh ipa category at gbf for that uh what is it about that kind of combination that uh that kind of elevates that beer
2: I think the Sultana brings just a little more of a, a dankness to the um, the whole beer. And when we had the two of them on tap side by side, uh, they were quite different. It just even with that one little change of uh, adding some Sultana in the dry hop, yeah, quite noticeable.
0: What? Uh, how would you describe that difference?
2: You know, I don't know really how to tell you. Uh, I wish we had. I guess we actually do have the beers here. We could uh, we could try it.
0: Sure. Yeah. Sure. Let's do that. Yeah. Let's do that and see what see what you think. Okay. So we've got some glasses now in front of us, and uh, you know we're, we're drinking some uh, more Dodge, less Ram, which is named after a little incident at the brewery, and uh, then some super bow, Superpower next to it. Yeah, and again, both of these beers won gold medals at the past at GBF, which uh, led to you all winning Small Brewery and Small Brewer of the Year. Congratulations on that, by the way. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. As as I I have some ideas about what I find the difference in these, but talk to me a little bit about um, you know as you taste them next to each other and you smell them next to each other, how the small differences kind of express in the peers.
2: Well, I, I think you can tell, in between the superpower and the uh, the more dodge less ram, uh, the more dodge less ram just seems to have an extra note at the end of it. I mean that's how I perceive it anyway. I mean what do you think?
0: Yeah. I, I think the first thing that I get off of the nose is there's almost like a like a little green melon character on the more dodge less ram that's the uh, whereas you know in, in superpower itself it's almost kind of a like a dried stone fruit you know um, character that that comes out uh, first and foremost superpower to me is a little grassier in this case okay
1: and and having uh you know drinked drank these beers side by side uh, you know it the the dry hop load is a lot heavier so that increases the pH so I think that there's a more Assertive bitterness that the more dodge less ram has as opposed to the superpower and um, I think that's kind of what what helps stand out It's just got a little bit more bitterness to balance out that that extra gravity and extra alcohol
0: So it, do you brew it to be a bigger beer in general then because of that higher, you know dry hop load? How does how does that mechanism work?
2: Well, um, you know originally it started off as just a, a triple dry hop version of superpower. Yeah, just to commemorate the the accident and over the years it's um i sort of tried to make it its own beer but you know when i went back and looked at what we did this year i mean it's literally it starts off the same as superpower and the only difference was uh the dry hop now the other thing we did with it is since we don't make this beer all the time uh instead of correct for a uh gravity that was a little higher at the end than what we were looking for we just went ahead and let it be and so yeah
0: it, it does come out a little uh heavier, um, higher alcohol than superpower. So, uh, because of that dry hop load, are you finding greater attenuation also? I mean, I know that hop uh, hops creep is a thing that everyone is talking about these days. And with the additional enzymatic activity that would theoretically come from that much more dry hop, uh, you know, are you seeing some difference there or do they attenuate similarly, uh, or are you not seeing that kind of thing in the, in through the dry hop?
2: Well, I, I have never seen that, to be honest with you. And I've looked at a lot of dry hopped beers over the years. Sure. And we've, ever since we've heard about this, uh, I've been looking at them even closer. What we see is after dry hopping, uh, we're nearly at terminal, if we're not at terminal. We see a slight increase in uh, gravity, maybe by a tenth of a Play-Doh. And then give it a few days, and we, and it comes back down to where it was before. And at that point, we're already 10 or 11 days in at this point. We do a test to see if uh, we get, have any DMS and uh, or diacetyl. Right. And um if not, we go ahead and uh, crash the beer. And then, you know, three or four days later, we're drinking it. So <laughs> I don't know if we... So it's not
0: really a problem for you. Yeah.
2: Not for us. I mean, at, maybe we're not given enough time. You know, I think fresh beer is better. Sure.
1: And and I'd like to jump in here real quick. Um, you know, our beers tend to finish on the drier side. I'd say most of the final gravities of all our beers are, you know, less than two. Um, and, you know, there probably could be some sort of extra interaction from the, you know, extra al- amylase from the hops. However, the beer is already so dry anyways, um, I just don't think we're seeing any extra conversion. Uh, if we had a beer that maybe finished higher, maybe at, right, you know, right. above three or, 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 you know, mid twos, I think, um, you know, there would probably be a little bit more of that hop creep. But, um, right. you know, these beers are For pretty some much... Some of these hazy
0: IPAs in the five to seven, you know, finishing range, you can see why uh, there might be something more there.
1: Yeah, so I think maybe um, just the just how how low the finishing gravity is, and we're already at you know ninety plus percent uh, you know apparent uh, attenuation. I think there's just right. there's just nothing left to
0: to convert and ferment out anymore. Fair enough, fair enough. Let's talk a little bit. You do uh, wet hop variations on these beers and uh, of course have won two silver medals at jabf in the in the wet hop beer category for fresh hop superpower um, talk to me a little bit about how that process for superpower changes when you start bringing wet hops into the equation uh, well it's pretty fun for us um, <clears throat> it's a special day
2: whoever on the staff that is not working that day they usually come in and, and lend a hand because we're dealing with you know almost 500 pounds of wet hops that we have to handle in a uh, fairly short amount of time but yeah, we basically, I think everybody's doing this now. You basically, in our case, we use our uh, mash Lauderton as a giant hot back. And so post-boil, we uh, send the, the hot wort on top of those hops. And then from there, after a short rest, we send it through the heat exchanger as normal and into the fermenter.
0: How would you say short rest, what does that look like for you?
2: Oh, maybe 10 minutes of like recirking. Yeah. Uh, and then it's time to go.
0: Otherwise, you keep the recipe the same, and uh, or do you adjust because of uh, some of the contributions that those hops will have? We did keep it the same. I mean, the, the same hop rate as
2: normal. But uh, in the last few years, we have adjusted down a little bit because you do get a, quite a contribution uh, from that amount of, of wet hop.
0: When you say contribution, um, you know, I imagine you're talking both flavor and you know some uh, some bitterness as yeah. well. Yeah,
2: yeah, you do. You do definitely get a noticeable uh, bitterness. Yeah.
0: If you were to kind of mentally equate for it, what would what, what the mental equation of IBU contribution be for that? And obviously, like, it's, it, it's probably not, you know, classic IBUs, um, you know, but from a perceptible difference, what, what would you say? A perceptible difference? Uh, Do you, like, when you are kind of thinking about it, like, is that adding, eh, you know, about five IBUs or ten IBUs, you know, what, what would that look like for you?
2: I don't know. David, have we uh, had these beers tested?
1: Yeah, we have. I can, I can pull up the numbers and, and take a look. Curious. Yeah,
2: so we'll look at that. Uh, Yeah. I mean, if I had to to guess, I mean, I'd say it would be less than 10 IBUs either way. Sure,
0: sure. Um, I'm just curious about that. You know, I, I know as everyone's trying to think about how some of these impacts happen, I mean, brewers, you know, even if you're a home brewer brewing with your own hops out of your backyard, you know, trying to figure out how these things work and are going to work for you, you know, becomes a big trial and error kind of thing. And you guys have a few years of experience now doing that. I'd just love to you know kind of think about uh you know what that looks like for you well
2: yeah i I remember the first fresh hot beer i made was uh actually at barley browns it was uh it was great eli and i uh, actually took delivery of several different varieties and they're all harvested at different times so he he brought his uh vacuum packer food saver machine to to the brewery and every time we'd receive a box we would uh you know cram them into the bags seal it up and throw it in the freezer that they had there so when we finally received the last variety, which I think was Citra, we pulled everything out and, and made the beer. And I remember walking into the brewery the next day and the smell was just incredible. And we have been, uh, been making those beers ever since every year. Now it's kind of a seasonal beer for us. Well, it, it yeah. is the seasonal beer for us. <laughs> it's
0: the one beer that has to be seasonal, right? Uh, yeah. But yeah, forget pumpkin beer. <laughs> um, you know, from that perspective, you know, being in uh oregon and baker city at at barley browns where you can drive a couple hours to yakima or drive a couple hours you know in the other direction down to the hops growing area in oregon it's a little different than being here in colorado for uh you know and brewing a fresh hop beer talk to me a little bit about the uh you know how you accomplish that in the here in the state of colorado uh
2: well the farms that we work with here are uh pretty accommodating especially when you buy it the amount of hops that we do so you
0: work with uh you're getting fresh hops from farms in the pacific northwest that are shipping them down here or we,
2: we have done that we we yeah. did uh, an oregon version of the fresh hop one year and those hops had to be uh, flown down and we picked yeah. them up at the airport uh but that, we only did that one year the other years we've worked with uh high wire hops out of paonia this year we worked with both high wire uh and another farm, Billy Goat Farms in Montrose, Colorado.
0: So local hops farms in Colorado. Colorado is not known for its hops-growing regions. Uh, you, know, what right. are the, what, uh, you know, how do you think about the different kind of flavor contributions that come from some of these local or semi-local Colorado-grown hops?
2: Uh, well, the varieties they grow here are mostly the, the public varieties. Uh, the old classics like um, Cascade, Chinook, Nugget, Crystal, Uh, So that's what we have to work with here. You know, this year we had an interesting experiment dealing with the different terroir between just Montrose and Peonia, And uh, we actually do have those, both of those beers are still on tap, right?
0: Yeah, still got them both on. What, uh, when you say interesting terroir differences, uh, similar variety but two different growing locations?
2: Yeah, it was a Cascade Chinook and I think a little bit of CTZ from uh, Highwire. And then Cascade and Chinook from uh, Montrose, from uh, Billy Goat Farms. So what uh, what did you notice in terms of terroir difference? My favorite of the two were the, was the, uh, the Billy Goat version.
0: Okay. And that's See, for Montrose?
2: For Montrose. Seemed a little fruitier to me. You know, it's about 50-50 between staff and customers, which one they like better. Noticeable, Noticeably different, though.
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, aside from that, the the Paonia plants, the, the farm's been around a little bit longer. So the plants are a little bit more mature.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, I believe they're all organic and they're heavily irrigated as well. The ones coming from Billy goat are a little bit, uh, maybe younger, maybe two or three years old. So they're still kind of, uh, maturing and kind of about to hopefully reach their full potential. So, um, I, I, I actually personally like the Paonia one a little bit more. I think it's more well-rounded. It's a little bit smoother. And, uh, I mean, I, I, I just have a personal preference for the Paonio version. So
0: what's the the key to brewing an award-winning wet hop IPA? You know, and there are breweries all over the country, hundreds if not a thousand of them brewing wet, wet hopped beers through wet hop season. That's obviously a very popular seasonal beer to brew. But going from that of just brewing it to wanting to brew the best iteration of that that really showcases the the wet hops in a uh you know both classic and contemporary kind of way you know from your perspective in your mind as you're thinking about these beers what is it that kind of sets that apart what what are the keys to to brewing those kind of successfully i think
2: we believe that you have to use uh, enough um you know we okay. <laughs> like i'm talking about we 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 buy uh you know, 450 pounds
0: and when you say enough, like, that's expensive. I mean, that's this is, it is not a,
2: a cheap enterprise. It's a very expensive beer, yeah. But, yeah, you, we see people buying, you know, maybe 100 pounds or 150 pounds and, you know, on a system not too much smaller than ours, and we're, I think to myself, that's not going to work. It's not going to do it. Uh, so pounds per barrel. I mean, actually, this year it occurred to me that we could probably uh, stick more in there uh, next year. So I don't know if David's wanting to do that, but... <laughs>
1: Yeah, we'll, we'll see what kind of pricing that they're going to, what pricing for hops is going to be next year.
0: So pounds per barrel, what do you, what do, when you brew a wet hop beer, what is the rough equivalent of that?
1: Well,
2: I think, uh, I think back in the day when I first started doing this, uh, I think I read or heard somewhere that you needed to use, uh, I think, five times the, the amount that you would use of uh, pellets. Right. So I think we're somewhere around north of 30 pounds per barrel of the, the, the wet hop. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I think uh it's closer to 40.
0: 40 pounds per barrel wet hops. And that doesn't and then there's pellets on top of that. Okay, that's insane. And uh an expensive enterprise. How do you, you know, how do customers take to that? I mean, it's a fun thing to drink that beer, but that's also an expensive beer for you to brew and yet it's hard to price that in a way that uh reflects the addition, you know, the cost for you all.
1: Well, you know, the the beer is uh, the cost, just the product cost, is three times more than what a normal superpower would be. Uh, we can't charge three times the no, price. So we just, sure. you know, we, we'll have to just rely on some of our other beers to help kind of m- even out our margins. But it's uh, it's a passion project for us. And people know that it is, you know, one time a year. Right, and they right. get to try it. Um, having a couple of silver medals uh, associated with that, that also kind of, um, you know, people are kind of more inclined to, you know, you know try some award-winning beer and um i don't know you just got to enjoy it while the you know the the window is just so short so i think there's a sense of urgency that's kind of just built um into just the way that these beers are brewed and um you know people are willing to you know pay pay for it while while
0: it is i mean it's only around for a few months out of the year anyways and since yours is a taproom business and you are selling it at least over the counter you know here in your tap room, uh, you know, it becomes the only place to kind of get that and taste that. You know, or you know, maybe a few select accounts that might get that kind of beer, um, and so you can price it in a way where at least you're not losing your shirt um, selling it out there in a, a twelve dollar a six pack kind of package.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We do uh, we do send out uh, four barrels, and um, you know we we do have to charge a lot for the beer, but the accounts also charge accordingly accordingly themselves. Sure.
0: Sure, sure. No, that makes a lot of sense. But it's a great reason to pop into your taproom, you know, in the fall and and drink those beers right here uh, where you can get it the freshest and where, you know, it's been cared for properly. And uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Let's talk about some of the other beers you do. Another beer that, uh, you know, you uh, have uh, won awards for is World Beer Cup medal for your chili beer, Yellow Fever. Talk to me a little bit about, and that's a subject that uh, we've never talked about here on the podcast. I've never once spoken about a chili beer, uh, but that was something that I found a little bit intriguing. Uh, uh, talk to me about designing chili beer and what it takes to, to make an award-winning chili beer. Okay, this is,
2: a, this is a little bit of a funny story, but uh, this is another uh, thing that I brought down from Oregon, from Barley Browns. Uh, they had been making a a beer called the Hot Blonde for years, one of their staple beers. At some point, I'm I'm not a coffee drinker, so I I drink Rockstar. At some point, I decided to combine lemonade-flavored Rockstar with the chili beer, half and half, and it was delicious. And uh, so when I moved away from Oregon and here, and there was a serious lack of chili beer, I decided we had to make one, uh, just for my own selfish reasons. You know it developed so that you
0: could mix it half and half with rockstar energy drink
2: yep every morning <laughs> yeah we, we call that the of ford okay um it's they even sometimes still they even make this uh concoction and at barley brown still on occasion so got a, its own little
0: legacy your there. legacy lives okay right so you make this beer in order to blend it with Rockstar Energy Drink, which is the strangest story of a chili beer that I've ever heard. Um, but what, uh, talk to me a little bit about how you designed it and how uh, how you balance the kind of strong flavors in the chili beer.
2: I mean, I I, I learned all this at, at Barley Browns. Uh,
0: it's pretty simple. Uh, well, tell me how Barley Browns does it, because I haven't had Eli uh, on the podcast yet.
2: Ah, not yet.
0: One day. It's, one it's,
2: day. it's simple. It's, uh, we just take our... Uh, our yellow card citra Blond ale we uh, run to the store buy about uh the equivalent of i guess six pounds per barrel of fresh jalapenos chop them up put them in a special keg that we have that has a big lid we can fit the bag of jalapenos into and then uh put the finished beer on there for a couple of days uh, and it's ready to go that sounds that's, awfully that's
0: similar so you're not even brewing a separate batch of it you're just pulling off of the the main batch of uh of the blonde ale and then uh you know, conditioning it on some jalapenos, and that's that. Yeah, that's that's it. That's How do you avoid some of the vegetal character and the? You know, I mean, peppers are all obviously notorious for doing that kind of thing, and some of that can be off-putting in a in a beer. Is there a quality of the jalapenos that you look for? Is that a time thing or?
2: Uh, well, we just look for the ones that look good. Obviously, not you know, not uh, going bad already. But uh, as far as the vegetal character goes, we uh, we're actually going for that yeah yeah I mean if you if you try the beer it's people will often say I mean it's like it's like you just sliced open a fresh jalapeno I and mean, that's kind of what we're going for
0: is there a freshness element to that that uh, you know where you make sure and I guess if you're brewing that that kind of base beer on a relatively frequent basis you can make fresh versions of that you know anytime you, you know, pull off a new batch um, you know does that make a difference uh it it
2: does um and to be honest with you we
0: have, uh i'm drinking some now and that yeah. really does just smell like a jalapeno pepper
2: right we have actually made uh chili beers with uh a lot of our different uh beers i mean all the way from smoked lager which was a really delicious version of a chili beer to uh to some of our ipas uh depending on what we have and what's uh available to us uh, as far as the beer goes like sometimes we're uh running a little low on the yellow card and have to get creative and use something else.
0: That's uh, fascinating. How do you find that the peppers interact with the kind of hoppier beers?
2: Uh, myself, I prefer just a more of a blank canvas for them to yeah. you know, shine through. Uh, with the hoppiness it gets a little confusing sometimes.
0: Well wow, this is burning my throat right now, but, uh, but I'm rather enjoying it.
2: Uh, yeah, some people are more sensitive than others. Uh, we uh, try to make sure people have had the beer before uh, as they're ordering it because it can be too much for some people.
0: Um, maybe we should switch some some gears again and talk a little bit about some of the other beers you you know you make. Uh, your Defcon Red is an award winner, and uh, I have some fond memories of actually uh, of sitting in a line at a Crooked Stave, I think, for a Zwan's Day back in 2014, I think it was. And uh, David, you were walking through the line pouring a growler of coffee cream uh, uh, stout for everybody that was sitting out there that morning waiting for uh, for the Cantillon Zwan's Day uh, to start. Talk to me a little bit about those two beers, um, you know, building a uh, kind of cream stout approach uh, in the days kind of before pastry beers were a full-on thing, was uh, was a, a different kind of sweet approach to that. Uh, uh, what uh, what led you to that kind of uh, stout design? Um,
1: yeah. So uh, talking about the coffee cream, I think that's probably maybe one of my only contributions to like any of the beers that's on the board. Uh, when we talked about getting this place open, um, it there was a, definitely a big trend towards. A lot of new types of beers, a lot of varieties, a lot of seasonals. Um, you know, so we wanted to have a very limited amount, but a, a, a wide array of beers as well to have on year round. Um, and in the end, we settled on a blonde ale, uh, Irish style red ale, uh, something hoppy, which is the Superpower IPA, and then uh, something dark. Um, what the origin of the of that beer was? Uh, I at well, when I was at Dry Dock um, every every few months or so we would get the opportunity to kind of decide to brew whatever that we wanted and you know it was uh we we would just place the order for the ingredients we would brew it and we would have like total control over uh what we did um there was an old uh coffee milk stout recipe that uh i think kevin delang had originally written um it had uh, I don't. I don't even know how many hop additions it had. I don't know twelve different malts or something like that. And so it was, you know, a beer that that I enjoyed drinking. Um, you know, one of my
0: twelve different malts.
1: Yeah, um, it was. Uh, it was like a really crazy recipe. But um, yeah, you know, when I when I was first getting into beer, um, and I don't even know if uh, you know where you can get get it anymore. But the Mackeson Triple X Stout. Uh, I mean, it was probably available maybe 15, 20 years ago. It was contract brewed by Sam Adams, but it had its own label. It was uh, brewed under license from Whitbread. Um, if you ever had that beer, it is like the most perfect milk stout that there is. And you know, you already got you know something dark, something roasty, you know, it's already got the lactose in it. And I think it just would have paired really nice with, uh, with coffee so i i looked at the recipe that uh that, that kevin had written and i kind of rewrote it with only i think four four ingredients maybe two hop additions and uh we just put in a ton of coffee um it it was uh it, was, it ended up being like really good and um i think it ended up winning uh it ended up winning a medal at at JBF for coffee beer as well um for dry dock and so we wanted to you know, kind of do something similar to that. It's it's different with uh, with the type of roasted malts that we use, uh, with a different type of coffee, um, and it's uh, much stronger than it than it was. It was uh, it's now like a six percent beer, whereas the the one from Dry Dock was less than five percent.
0: Crazy! You're getting crazy with that six percent uh, lactose uh, kind of stout there. Um well talk to me a little bit about coffee additions on that. Uh you know, there there's another character you know, another uh area where especially in a lower A B V beer like six percent, where any off flavors in coffee can become much more apparent compared to something like an Imperial stout where uh you know the alcohol can bowl over those flavors. How do you balance, you know, that kind of coffee contribution in a beer like that and uh you know, on that kind of lower A B V range?
1: It it kind of, uh, it, it, we've uh, evolved, um, we kind of limit the amount of contact time to the beer. Uh, you can get some of that vegetal green pepper, sure. um, when it has uh, too much contact time with the, with the coffee beans themselves. Are um, you doing
0: whole bean? Or are you grinding or uh, how do you process we, that? We
1: get them, uh, we get them coarse ground from the roaster. Uh, okay. we use a local coffee roasting company down the road from us, Calati brothers. And, uh, they've come up with their, you know, they call it the comrade, comrade brew, I think. Uh, it's a blend of two different beans. And, uh, when we, when we first had it, it was just like, oh yeah, this is just good coffee. And the, the, the master roaster was like, no, like it doesn't, it doesn't have the right notes here. It's like, doesn't have this type of coffee flavor. I'm not getting this, you you know, I should be expecting these types of notes using these types of beans. And so over, I think four or five iterations, um, he, he ended up, the, the master roaster ended up just like picking out what he wanted and uh that's how we settled up on it we didn't really have any any other feedback in so terms he was of tasting coffee. your
0: finished beer and saying hey you no, know, i i want the, i think these notes should come out of the co- of the coffee beer and so i think we can change the roast how did he adjust the roast on that in order or the coffee selection in order to achieve that
1: uh, I I'm not sure. We just we just uh, brew the beer, give them some crowlers, and then okay. next time we order some more coffee. Uh, it's just different, and uh, it's but it's hyper
0: technical approach here. Yeah,
1: yeah. So you know, I, I am also not a coffee drinker. So I, I taste uh, coffee, and it it tastes like coffee. I, I don't know if it's good coffee or bad coffee. Um, and so you know, we kind of really like to let people that are more talented than ourselves kind of you know help help with us. Uh, you know, because you know, we know we don't know what we're doing when it comes to coffee. Yeah, yeah. Those guys uh, at Kaladi Brothers jumped right in, and
2: and uh, yeah, they whatever they did, uh, we like
0: it and it's working. So uh, thanks to them. So coarse ground coffee, then uh, how long does it stay in contact with the with the beer?
1: So it's it's also kind of evolved uh, as we when when we first brewed it. Uh, I think the first times we did it, we would uh, empty a brink and put the grounds into a bag and then fill. Uh, you know finished beer into the brink let it sit and then uh, shoot it back in line while we're transferring to the bright tank Um, over the years we've kind of tried to make it easier for ourselves and uh, now we just dump just straight coffee grounds directly into the prv port and and then we crash the beer and then we transfer it so it gets about a day of contact time in there
0: the uh the lactose component to that kind of creating a little bit of sweetness to it uh you know again was not as popular a thing when you started brewing this uh you know six five years ago or six years ago at dry dock in the beer that kind of prefigured this one how did you uh how do you kind of jive that sweeter approach to dark beers with the incredibly dry approach to to west coast ipas that you all produce here
1: um i think it was uh, it, it really just goes back to that Mackeson triple X out and yeah. kind of wanting to to replicate that um, um, I, I don't a even...
0: particular sense memory that you had in the the kind
1: it, of... exactly yeah that beer has a lot of nostalgia for me and uh, I mean I've, I've drank you know many many cases of that beer when it was available and um, but it was discontinued years ago and it was just kind of like you know it was one of my first gateway beers getting into craft and it was just kind of my my want to kind of Re-experience that, and so that's uh, that's how we end up doing it. We weren't trying to do anything. I was just trying to replicate uh, this, just this fond memory
0: I had from from over a decade ago. I guess you know, like you said earlier, it's beers you want to drink, and uh, if there's any left, you'll sell them to other people. So that certainly makes sense. Talk to me a little bit about Defcon uh, Red, your uh, red ale. You know, now again, if you're launching this brewery, you know, you seem to have you know an, a lineup that feels. In some way, classic, you know, in terms of uh, you know the different styles that you offer to different kind of drinkers, but you also put your own spin on this and make them comrade beers. How do you do that with something like a red ale?
2: Uh, Well, let's see. The red ale, I don't know how we uh, even decided to do that. I think it was just we wanted uh, you know something light, something dark, something hoppy, and then something uh, kind of in between. Very classic sort of lineup. I remember a similar lineup from the first place we worked which was Hub City Brewing Company uh, in Lubbock, Texas. Uh, you know, they had your classic American Wheat, you had your uh, Ogallala Light Ale, uh, an Amber, and uh, Oatmeal Stout. You know, that was it, you know, right? I don't know, Irish Red just seemed like a nice drinkable beer. Uh, and you don't see a lot of those anymore. Uh, it's not a style you see very often. I think Lone Tree makes one. Uh, but other than that, um, don't see too many around here. Interestingly enough, it's a beer we made a lot of different ways with a lot of different ingredients. But the main thing is to hit that nice red color. You know, hold back on your hops. You know, you're, not, you're let, not looking for bitterness at all. You're looking for more of a sweetness in that beer. So uh, a good, good chunk of caramel malt in there. I think it uh, registers at. I think we calculated at 18 IBUs. Probably it's not even really there. And then uh, just a good clean finishing yeast. You know.
0: When you say it's gone undergone a lot of changes over the years, what does that mean? What, are, what did? How did it start, and how did it evolve to what it is now?
2: Well, I think when we started with it, it was uh, we were uh, probably unnecessarily complicated with it, trying to use uh, too many hops and in a in a beer that's not even supposed to be hoppy. So, right. where, and where we are now with it is uh, we sort of have a huge amount of Simcoe, and we just do a one simple addition at 70 minutes to uh, hit the um, theoretical bitterness level we're looking for and that's it and that's really supposed to be more of a malty beer so
0: so talk to me a little bit about the flavor uh contributions of uh, some of the specialty malts that you use into it i mean that's something we've been talking about the last few episodes of the podcast that uh uh, we talked to dylan from civil society and he was talking about the difference between color contributions and flavor contributions and some of these specialty malts Um, and we uh, even talked about it uh with uh, chris from troubadour you know last week on the podcast uh how do you think about um you know again building flavor with some of with the specialty malts that you choose for this so that uh you know the beer uh, because obviously that flavor is the difference in uh uh, an average beer and a fantastic beer how do you build a you know an award-winning medal-winning type of red uh ale uh, and think about the kind of flavor contributions of specialty malts for that
2: oh well like i said in that beer you're looking for i think one of the key terms in the description is a uh, candy like sweetness and so uh, we use uh, like I said a good chunk of uh, light crystal malt I think it's a c15 to be honest with you uh, a handful of uh, chocolate malt pale chocolate malt what else is in there uh, just a you know the nice clean Pilsner base I mean we probably should be using a pale ale for that but the base here tends to be Pilsner what else is in there uh, uh, yeah some Imperial some Simpsons Imperial malt which is yeah. a really interesting. Uh, kind of a uh, it's not a crystal it's not a it's a more of a i don't know just a highly roasted british you know variety i mean as you can see it's just a nice like drinkable beer uh, not overwhelming at all but solid
0: And again i think you're you're totally underplaying and underselling it uh, uh and and uh, misleading on the simplicity of brewing a beer of that kind of quality you mentioned a little bit about the description, and you're talking about a style description of candy-like sweetness, and that brings uh, up a kind of theoretical point. How much do the style definitions, whether they're GABF-style definitions or BJCP-style definitions, impact the way that you think about and construct beers? You know, there are, you know, different brewers take different approaches to these, you know, certainly. Um, you know there are brewers that look at those style descriptions as following you know what brewers do and describing there are those that are really you know focused on making you know and winning awards and playing within the kind of parameters that these kind of style expectations set up how do you all in that sense kind of think about how you as a brewery interact with styles and find that nexus between brewing to these styles and satisfying your customers
1: well, I, you know, uh, style guidelines, I think, um, you know, they're kind of a double-edged sword where, you know, some people, um, you know, they kind of look at them and maybe it's just too constraining. Um, but I think they're a great way to also kind of, um, kind of set up your expectations. Um, you know, if you were going to go to a, uh, you know, like a Chicago-style restaurant and then you order their deep-dish pizza and it's like big and flat and floppy more like new york style like you you know you order you order it and it has like a you know you already have like a idea in mind on what it what it is and there are certain attributes on the way that it looks um you know and i think that you know style guidelines have a way to play into that um since a lot of our beers uh you know they're they're kind of more contemporary takes on american styles and uh, maybe you know with the red con the, the irish style red ale um you know the red con doesn't really have that type of uh, candy-like sweetness it's definitely more drier and a little bit more balanced um, but when it comes to uh, you know when it comes to competition um, sometimes you know we'll, we we read them and the guidelines do change and you know for like IPA we will kind of you know we may make adjustments to to tailor to you know hit what the judges are supposed to be looking for um, you know for Redcon, uh, I don't remember what happened last year, but I think we just needed to just throw in another beer and we kind of read the guidelines and we actually, we take the opposite approach. We, we say, okay, we got this beer, Redcon, uh, where do we think that it would, you know, where, where, which guidelines does it actually match it most with? And so um, we, we, we approach it from, from both directions.
0: And that actually brings up another interesting point. You won uh, gold in a, a strong pale ale for Superpower this year, and you won gold in American style IPA for more uh, more Dodge, less Ram. Um, obviously, the same base for both of those beers, but uh, but speaking to exactly what you said, finding the right category for each of those beers is the difference between winning and not winning. Um, you know, so how do you how did you uh you know kind of work through that process and make some decisions around where to enter those beers
1: well, you know when we're talking about superpower um you know that beer just has such you know such balance to it you know prior when we were talking about the i b u wars and you know want to make it as bitter as possible you know we got big flavor big aroma and it just got a very balanced bitterness to it um, we looked at the guidelines for american i p a and you know, it said that you know assertive bitterness is one of the components for it, and superpower just doesn't have it. And you know, when we think about you know if it needs to be more bitter, you know, you know, this you know superpower maybe wouldn't do all that great in that category.
0: And so you chose to enter it into the strong pale ale instead, where you thought the bitterness would kind of uh, you know fit.
1: Yeah, it, I think it made uh, it made the most sense while we were uh, you know when we were entering the beers.
0: Yeah, well, it seemed to work. And, uh, you know, two gold medals is nothing to, to, to uh, 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 undersell in that kind of regard.
2: Yeah, the, I think the other thing we did uh, or have been doing over the past year or so is we started working with a mobile lab. You know, their instruments are, are better than what we have here. And it uh, turned out that, uh, you know, what we thought was, you know, seven and a half percent uh for super was actually closer to eight a lot of times so in the over the last year we've been working on bringing it down hmm. um, so now it is closer to uh, you know 7.2 percent ABV so it's a little smaller uh, and we thought it just would fit better into a, a little smaller you know uh, style category really whereas the uh, more Dodge less Ram you know I like we said earlier we just let that one go so uh, yeah I think David made a good choice putting them where he did.
0: Makes sense to me. As the future uh, of Comrade is still yet unwritten, uh, what do you all look for in the future? And what, would, what is your ideal for this business? What is your definition of success? Have you achieved it? Are you on your way to achieving it? And uh, you know, for you, what is a successful brewing business? You know, what is, you know, when will you know that you've achieved that? Well, if you look behind you, you
2: see the mural where we uh, had a, an artist uh, start painting up our awards in uh, both the World Beer Cup and the Great American Beer Festival. And uh, you see we still have a lot of room up there, so we need to uh, do some work this year and uh, try and even it out a little bit on the World Beer Cup side. But, yeah, I mean, I think if we fill that, fill up the mural up there, then I think that's going to be a decent measure of success, success at least for me, uh, being on the beer side.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I I wasn't quite sure. I just know that uh, when we when we got open, we also kind of told ourselves, you know, as our own bosses, you know, we don't want to be doing anything that, you know, we don't enjoy doing. And so we've been able to, you know, continue to to do that. Um, You know, we're not making, you know, a lot of money here um you know we're still able to carve out a, a comfortable living and you know we, you'll find us here most days uh drinking our own dog food if you will so we you know we do really enjoy our product and i think um to be able to come in and drink beer and kind of chat with the customers and kind of be that community space um for like the neighborhood to come in i think you know for if, if we're filling this de- demand for you know just good just beer flavored
0: beer that's now that you can drink pints of uh you know i think i think that's success for us well, cheers. David Lynn, Mark Slanham, thanks for talking to me on the podcast today. Um, before we get out of here, uh, g and Chillers is the industry's premier choice for glycol chilling. Tavor is the tastiest way to explore the world from the comfort of your home. October Can Seamers is the small-scale canning solution. And uh, Clarion Lubricants is the expert that experts trust. If people want to find more about Comrade, where do they find you guys?
1: Yeah, you can find us uh, on our website at comradebrewing.com. dot uh, com. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, and uh, if you're here in Denver, uh, we're just two miles east of I twenty five in Evans. That's exit two hundred three, and
0: uh, not too far away from the airport. And, um, you can find us on Draft Around Town as well, for sure. And uh, if you pop into the tap room, you'll be sure to find other uh, local brewers here as well enjoying their beers uh, because uh, you know they are some experts that experts trust. <laughs> Uh, David and Marks, thanks for joining me on the podcast this week. Cheers. Cheers. Thank
1: you. Yeah, thanks for coming down.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. For those that love to make and drink great beer, learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Brew.